Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. A round of applause. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the beginning of uh, the week, I was like, who is reading the scripture this week? They're going to need some extra love and prayer uh, <laughs> going into it. Well done, Morgan. Well done. Excellent job here. Well, hey, welcome to Christmas, the Christmas season that is, uh, which is like, for those of you who are extroverts, this is the most exciting time of the year. And if you're introvert, the most exhausting time of the year with all the party invitations and so forth. But even more importantly, we actually arrive at Advent this Sunday. It actually started a couple days ago, but this is our first Sunday in Advent. And Advent means arrival, as David was reminding us, the coming. And it's a season where we reenact all over again what it meant that Jesus came into the world. But it's also not just a reenactment, but looking forward with hope to his second coming. Reminding ourselves that the story's not done yet. So here we are starting today a new series for Advent called The Family of Jesus. And it seems very appropriate that we begin with the genealogy of Jesus, where it all began. Now, genealogy, of course, especially in the last 10, 15 years, as you know, because of technology and genetics, as uh, everyone's really interested all over again in genealogy. I remember talking about this with Kirsten Kirsten uh, when she was younger. Uh, she, had, her father, helped her one of her brothers actually write a paper about their connection with Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor. So you know the story about Charlemagne, Charles the Great, that is. And it, how cool would it be to be related to an emperor, right? I mean, wouldn't we all want that? Well, it turns out we all are related to Charlemagne. Uh, there's an article in the Guardian newspaper, British newspaper, from 2014. It was entitled, So You're Related to Charlemagne. It was written by a geneticist. <laughs> And he basically says this, if you have just one small little drop of, of like European ancestry, you're related to Charlemagne. Charlemagne had 18 kids with their motley mixture of wives and concubines. And basically it says, look, you're all related. Quote, it says, if you're vaguely of European extraction, you are also the fruits of Charlemagne's prodigious loins. Prodigious loins. Don't you love that? Prodigious loins. Yeah, so welcome to the family of Charlemagne. 
for, for a lot of you in here. But look, genealogy was a big thing back then too. Right? It's possible that, especially if you're brand new to Christianity, welcome by the way, glad that you're here with us. But if you are, and maybe for the first time you're getting a description, you're like, all right, I'm going to start with the very first words of the New Testament. Seems like an appropriate place to begin. And the very first words are genealogy with unpronounceable names. You're like, so boring. Like, what's the point? But let me tell you, not boring. Bombshell instead. Bombshells everywhere. I mean, this, I mean as we're going to go through this text, by the way, I'm not going verse by verse because we'd be here all day if that was the case. But as we go through this text, what we're going to see is a story about us, actually. And good news for us, it turns out. So this morning, there's going to be something expected, right? And, th- and this was true 2,000 years ago. They were expecting something, and it gets fulfilled in this genealogy. But there's something incredibly unexpected that they did not see coming, and it's also unexpected for you and for me. And as a result of the expected thing that's fulfilled, the unexpected thing here, we, along with them 2,000 years ago, we get a new reputation. We get a new life. We get a new identity, it turns out. So you, I hope you're excited to get into a genealogy. Right? You don't have to just be into genealogy the way that Kirsten's father was. Like This is exciting for us to see our faith in a place that perhaps is unexpected. So first here, the fulfilled expectation. Again, verse 1, this is how it all begins. Very first words in the New Testament. Matthew being the first gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this serves as sort of a title going into the genealogy, but let me tell you, it is packed with information, packed with storylines here just right off the bat. Now, Matthew is reaching a Jewish audience. You might say, well, weren't they all reaching a Jewish audience? Well, not necessarily. Like John, for instance, remember when John begins, in the beginning was the word, right? And what does that sound like to you? In the beginning was the Word. It sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? It sounds like, like he's, he's trying to tell the story, but he's actually talking to a bunch of Greek speakers primarily who are very philosophically minded. But Matthew, when he begins his Genesis, genealogy, it's the same root word, with new beginnings, he goes to the Jewish story, the story of the Messiah. Because the long-awaited promise that Jewish people who are faithful and orthodox, what they were waiting for, longing for, was the good news, because they knew that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David, King David. And so Matthew's saying, look, we're here. It's, it's arrived. Advent is upon us, as it were, here. And so I want you to see two things that get fulfilled here. Two things, and what we're going to see is actually has a lot to say to us, too. Two things. Here's the first one. The mission of God is being fulfilled. The promise from the Old Testament that that God would reach the nation. So the very first part here is the son of Abraham. So who was Abraham? Now look around the room. A few few kids that are not upstairs down here. You know the song, kids? Can you sing it with me? Father Abraham had many sons. Come on. Many sons had Father Abraham. Nice job. I like it. Harmony. Are you available for the nativity? Uh, Christmas Eve, we need some singers. So, no, so Father Abraham had many sons, right? Now, listen, this is a story. Remember, last week, my friend Shane was here, and he preached, and he's talked about the story of Abraham, the promise given to him and his, to be faithful to go. That's Genesis 12, then Genesis 15, Genesis 17, then Genesis 22, over and over and over again. There's a promise given to Abraham. Abraham, I know you're old. Like, you're like, like a century old kind of old. Like, and I, I know your wife. Sarah, I know that she's incredibly old, 
right? And she's well beyond uh, the maternal years, the years of fertility. But I've got good news for you. You're going to have a son. He keeps saying that over and over and over again. And then through your son, for the nations. Now, it says this in verse 18 of chapter 22. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. Remember, we've said this over and over again. That the, the narrative of the Old Testament, the, the, the words that are hanging over everything are, I will bless you, Israel, so that you might be a blessing to the nations. That through you, blessing to the nations. And so it begins with Abraham. So the story of blessing, as we come to the New Testament, starts with Abraham, as it were. This is what he's saying here. Now, this is where Israel is being formed. And if you are a Jewish reader, or you're listening to this story 2,000 years ago, what are you saying to yourself? You're saying, man, God has been faithful. Like, we are His chosen people. And remember what we've been saying in the Mark series, that, that the, the, the vision all along, Jesus was saying, was that the nations need to receive me through you, the Jewish people. And they had failed to do that. And Jesus is coming along and saying, I'm going to complete that mission. And so if you're, if you're a young follower of Jesus, you're, you're Jewish and, and you're experiencing persecution, you're experiencing a challenge to your faith, did, did we back the right horse, so to speak? Like, like, are we crazy? Everyone thinks we're crazy. Like, where's your confidence? Your confidence is looking at the genealogy and saying, yes, it's true. The prophecies have come true. This is fulfillment. This is a fulfillment of an expectation. But then, but it's not just the fulfillment of a mission of God for the nations. It's also the fulfillment of a promise that one of David's lineage will sit on the throne forever. Listen to what it says here in Psalm 89, verses 28 and 29. This is a promise uh, being remembered uh, to David. So this is the Lord speaking. My steadfast love I will keep for him, David, forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. The promise of the time of David was that, that David was, was the representative of God on earth, but it would be a representation, as it were, that would one day be fulfilled in someone coming out of the loins of David. And it would be a forever king, a much better king, an eternal king. Now again, remember, you're, you're 2,000 years ago. And by the way, unlike Charlemagne and everyone being related to him, not everyone was related to King David. And so it was amazing that the story is being told here that, yes, Jesus from Nazareth, little Hodunk Nazareth, is actually related. He's coming of the line. This is being fulfilled. He's the son of David. He's the son of a king. And he's the greatest king of all. This is what it means to fulfill the prophecies. And I want you to think this morning about fulfillment in this way. Fulfillment is, is sort of like, uh, and I'm looking at the kids again, so I'm going to say this to you. So you know this, kids, right? You, you've had those uh, coloring books where you, you color by number, you know what I'm talking about, where you, you kind of connect the numbers together. And, and what's it like when you, when you first get that page? There's just nothing on there, right? Or just a few numbers. It's just kind of sort of like a sketch, as it were. But then what happens when you connect the numbers? It's beautiful, right? And all of a sudden you start painting, coloring by number, that sort of thing like that. And you get this picture that wasn't there before. Well, that's what the Old Testament is like. The Old Testament is like a sketch of who God is. And then Jesus is connecting the dots. And we see for the first time, remember Jesus says this elsewhere in the Gospels, He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen who? The Father. Like if you really want to know who is God, this is fulfillment. Jesus is fulfillment itself. It's not just that the prophecies 
have been answered and fulfilled is that Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of everything, the come long expected Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so here's what that means for them, and here's what it means for us, okay? So let's just like, let's focus right now on, on who we are. We're in a season of Advent, and it's so appropriate this time of the year to take stock. David did a great job of setting up for us that, that word from John Piper about taking stock of ourselves, reflecting. I think for a lot of us in here, in fact, I'm going to say this right now, I think for all of us in here, right now we are in a season of waiting. And for some of you, that waiting is hard, and it's harsh, to be honest with you. And right now, here at the most exciting time of the year, you're finding your faith stretched thin. Why? Because like the saints of long ago, you've been waiting, and you've been waiting, and waiting. I think part of what Advent is about is to name your waiting right now. So I want to ask you right now, in fact, I want to give you homework this afternoon here on the Sabbath. I want to give you homework. The only work you're allowed to do today, okay? I want, you to, I, want you to, I want you to name your waiting. What is it? For some of you, you've been waiting for a child to come back to you. You've been you, spiritually or another way, emotionally, relationally. Others of you say, no, it's my spouse, actually. I've been waiting for them to come back. Or you're, you just feel stuck in your body, the image of yourself. Uh, it is, it's in your workplace. It's, it's a, academics. It's something but most of us in here, if we're honest, will say there's something I've been waiting for. And as a friend of mine says, most of the theology of the Bible is a theology of waiting. And if you look at it, and you look, Abraham, this great stalwart of the faith, right? You know what? You remember what happened with him? He decides to stop waiting for the promise to come true. And Ishmael is born. And that was not the son of promise. And it leads to conflict, which we're still experiencing in the Middle East today as a result. True story. True story. We are just like Abraham. We're just like, we wait. I'll tell you what, I'm waiting. There are things that I'm waiting for. I've been waiting for years. And, and the thing is, God's time frame is not ours. There was a season of 400 years, four centuries, between Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament, and these words. 400 years of silence. You know how, I mean, isn't it crazy? Like, you'll read a piece of scripture, and it'll be like, and Abraham, you know, in the year, you know, he was 75, and the next verse, when he was 95. I mean, it's 20 years went by in one verse. And we just kind of read and go, oh, yeah, he's 95 now. 20 years. I mean, can, what is it like to wait in real time? So, man, I think there's so much in this story for us about waiting and saying, is God good? Is God faithful? See, that's the ultimate question you have to ask if you're going to follow Christ. Is God good in my waiting? Do I trust that even though my prayers are not answered in the same time frame, and they're not answered according to how I want, do I trust that he's good? And the story for, for the original audience was, look, through exile. How many of you recognize the names in that last section there? Very few. Commentator after commentator, I was preparing this Sunday, for this Sunday. They're like, uh, we have no idea who that is. We have no idea who that is. That is, that is. I mean, like all the great names are in that, that first set, those two sets of lists there. But then you get to the exile, and it's like, oh, the promise is gone. Israel isn't Israel anymore. Waiting and waiting. And yeah, he says, no, no, no. My time frame. On my time frame. So I want to say this to you, friends, brothers and sisters. Like God's time frame is not yours. What is it that you're waiting for right now? Name it. 
Then give it to him this Advent season. And Jesus, I want to trust right now that you're for me and you're not against me. We're just getting started here. That's the first thing here, but I think it's important. But look, that, that's the fulfillment thing that leads to hope for us. But here's the second thing. It's unexpected grace. Now, commentators have noted that there's something wrong with Matthew's genealogy here. Okay? There's a lot of things wrong with it, actually, if you, if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty here. There are, there are omissions. Notice that, that it says at the very end of the text there that there are 14 generations. Like from, from Abraham to David, then David to the exile, and the exile to the time of Jesus. Well, actually, that's not true. There were names omitted. And so there's some omissions. Now, I don't have time to go through it. And it's not as, not as um, uh, important to discuss why, why there were omissions. Why did Matthew do it that way? He was a tax collector, remember? And so I think he likes order. So maybe that's the reason why 14, 14, 14. I like that, you know, keeping my math in order here. Maybe, maybe not. But it's the second thing. It's not the omissions. It's the commissions of the text that are absolutely bombshells. What do you mean, Pastor Scott? What do you mean by, by commissions? It's the scandals. This genealogy is rent through with scandal after scandal after scandal. Let me just give you a few of them. First of all are some of the names of these kings in here. Okay? Uh, beginning after David and Solomon and Rehoboam. Right? And then another name, Manasseh. Look, Manasseh, here's a great example. Manasseh. Manasseh was so evil that he had children sacrificed to pagan gods. Oh, it's the lineage of our Messiah. Ah, oh, Manasseh. Yeah. I mean, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, king after king after king. Go back and read First and Second Kings. You hear all the stories. And it's like, you know, the writer of the First and Second Kings was just like their hand was about to fall off from writing over and over again. And he did evil. And he did evil. And he did evil. I mean, over and over and over again. And so many of these names and the lineage. I mean, you may not recognize them, but let me tell you, if you go back and you know their story, you're like, oh my gosh. Scandal after scandal after scandal. But even perhaps more of a bombshell are the names of the women in this text. And here's in part why. Luke, when he does his genealogy, it's a matriarchal genealogy. And so he recounts the mothers in the line of Jesus. Now, Matthew does a patriarchal genealogy. He does it through the lens of the fathers, which begs the question, why in the world are women in this text? It makes absolutely no sense. That First of all, it's glaring uh, commission, as it were. But then it's the nature of who these women are. Let me read to you again verses 3 and then 5 through 6. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, four women are mentioned here, okay? None of whom are Jewish, by the way. That's the first, like, what? They're not Jewish. First, uh, Tamar and Rahab, they're both Canaanites. You've got Ruth, who is a Moabite. And then lastly, you have Bathsheba, who's not named by name, but wife of Rahab, that's who it was. And she was a Hittite. So first of all, women are in this text. They shouldn't be there, according to the patriarchal way thing. Second of all, they're all Gentiles. And you know, the other thing that, that they all have in common is sexual brokenness. One of the most profoundly disturbing stories of the Old Testament concerns the first name on that list, Tamar. In Genesis chapter 38, the story is told. So Judah 
is one of the sons of Jacob, excuse me, of Isaac, uh, brother to Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, the prophecy from the Old Testament, if you know it, is that through the line of Judah will come the Messiah, right? So, so we're talking about that Judah, right? Now, Judah had three sons, and the oldest son marries a woman named Tamar. And, and, and before that Tamar can get pregnant, the son suddenly dies. And so basically in that culture, in the ancient culture, what you did was that the second son, another son, would kind of step in to keep the family together, as it were, to keep her, to really cover her shame in that culture. And so, so Onan is his name. Onan is now married to Tamar, but let's just put it this way. Onan decides not to do his family responsibility in the bedroom. And, and so he, by the way, gets cursed because he's thwarting God's plan here, essentially, or trying to, as it were. And so finally, uh, Judah says, well, I have a third son, but here's the problem. He's not old enough yet. He's, he's much younger than you, Tamar. And so let's give it a few years, and then you can, you can be married to him. Okay, so she waits, and she waits, and she waits. Sound familiar? You know what Judah does? Or actually, it's what he doesn't do. He doesn't give his third son to Tamar. So Tamar is now unmarried, older in that culture, massive shame. Tamar takes matters into her own hands. And so the story's told in Genesis 38 that there's a certain street, that road that, that Judah would often travel. And so in an ancient world, they have a veil on their face, right? And so he doesn't recognize her, but she sits on the street side, sitting as a would-be prostitute. And Judah takes the bait and lays with her. And gets her pregnant. Ah. Incest. In the story of Jesus. Hmm. And, and then there's, there's uh, Rahab here. Who we don't know if she was a prostitute herself or a brothel owner. But that's her story. The story of Joshua. The book of Joshua that is. Amazing story of, of newfound faith here. But again, just a story that, that on itself stands out for its sexual brokenness. And then, let me just lastly mention here, uh, really the last scandal, because it involves more than just Bathsheba, involves the righteous King David. I mean, this is verse 6, right? Now, is it interesting to you that, that, that what, what she's named as is the wife of Uriah? What is Matthew doing here? Matthew is highlighting David's sin, is what he's doing here. Matthew's pointing out that it was Uriah. Remember the story that, that he, he lusts after Bathsheba. She's bathing on a rooftop beneath the palace, as it were, and by force takes her. Basically, it's rape. By force takes her. She gets pregnant. And what does David do to cover over sin ultimately? He murders Uriah the Hittite. The great and righteous king, David, murderer, tries to cover things up. Deception. For a second, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Matthew. Now, you've chosen to tell the genealogy of Jesus like this. Why might you do it that way? Well, first of all, who was Matthew? Tax collector. He was a man who knew something about scandal. He was a man who knew something about being on the outs. Of that culture. He's someone who knew what immorality and being labeled as such was like. 
Why is that important for you and for me to see and embrace? Because it's our story. Don't you see the beauty of this unexpected grace is it's our story. You say, wait a minute, I'm not a murderer. Matthew chapter 5. If anyone holds in contempt his brother, he's guilty of murder. Wait a minute, I've not committed adultery. Sermon on the Mount, same place. If anyone has as much as lusted after a woman, they're guilty of adultery. See what Jesus was doing? Jesus was saying, this is the whole point of the moral law. This is who we actually are. And, you know, the good news for you and for me is that Jesus didn't come for for righteous people. In fact, you know the story in, in Luke chapter 5, the religious leaders actually corner Jesus about this. They say, why do you spend all your time with, with people of ill repute, all the sinners and so forth? And this is how he responds. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't you see? The very family line of Jesus is the point of his coming. He came, not for those who had it together, but for those who are on the margins. Look, for some of you this morning, you feel it more than others. Now, the reality is all of us should identify with the broken and the family of Jesus. That is us. But some of you right now are feeling it more than others. And I know for a fact, in a, in a room this size, there's some of you this morning that are saying, if only Pastor Scott knew my life. If only he knew my background. Now, the fact is, God already knows that background, but you might even say to yourself, man, if God really knew who I was, like, he would never want me in his family. This church family wouldn't want me around if they knew my background. Look, unexpected grace is for you. It's for me, and it's for you. Who did Jesus come for? He came for the sick. He came for the broken, sexually and otherwise. He came for us. He's a different kind of Messiah. He was the unexpected Messiah. Yes, he was in the prophecies, and yes, they should have expected the Messiah, but yet at the same time, incredibly unexpected. A different kind of king. What does that mean for us? Here's what it means. This is where I close. It means that we, you and I, we have a different reputation, a much, by the way, better reputation. Isn't it fascinating that Matthew's gospel opens up with a genealogy about brokenness and the unexpected grace? And remember, the son of Abraham, the mission to bring the nations, the broken peoples of the world and the nations in. How does Matthew's gospel actually end? Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, look, I came to redeem my genealogy. I came to be the true son of Abraham, to go out on mission, not just for my 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 Jewish brothers and sisters, but for the nations, which means that most of us in here, because most of us are Gentiles, most of us in here are the answer to God's prayer for the nations. That, that the Messiah would come and he would continue his lineage. Look, the good news is that you've been brought into the lineage of Jesus and it's never ending. Until the second coming, we, he keeps adding more and more men and women, sons and daughters into that. It's why in Hebrews 2.11, he says, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers and sisters, for this was my mission, was to come for the brokenhearted, for the sinners, and call them to repentance. Here's where I close. It means this morning, here in Advent, as you wait in this season, 
and in some, maybe some very hard places in your life right now. Here's the good news. Right now, as you sit here, you have a much better reputation than you ever imagined. You have his reputation. You know, and funny, in the resumes, what do we do? In resumes, well, they're, uh, we, we clean ourselves up, so to speak. We, we put the best stuff out there. And did you know, by the way, that, uh, that what would happen with, with a victor, a uh, military victor or king, it was called a hagiography. Uh, the people, the historians after them would, would clean up the stories of that king, of that great leader. Isn't it fascinating that, that God doesn't do that? He shows us warts and all. There's no hagiography here. Instead, what does he give us? He gives us the work of Jesus Christ. Because in our resumes, we put our best foot forward, our best accomplishments. And Jesus says, my work to identify with the sinners, to take on your sin, my life and my death, my resurrection, it is my resume for you. It is my accomplishments for you. What does that mean in closing? It means that you and I have the blood of a better king in us. Much better than Charlemagne, by the way. Much better. <laughs> All of us, regardless of our ethnicity and where we come from, we have the blood of a better king in us. We've been brought in. And so here at Advent, in the season of celebration, as David said, what makes the cookies taste better is getting the priorities right in our celebration. This genealogy is our reason for celebration. Expected fulfillment. Yes, it's happened. The prophecies were fulfilled. But unexpected grace for you to live by. So let's do that here at Advent season. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power and your sovereignty to fulfill your promises to the nations. And that you've included us is also the unexpected grace. Lord Jesus, may we worship you with fresh eyes this holiday season. There's lots of pressure on us, the holiday parties, to get it right as we host. Lots of pressure on us with the the gifts around the Christmas tree. Lots of pressure on us to to make merriment. Father, the pressure's off. Because Jesus, you took the pressure, the true pressure the ultimate pressure, the pressure of our sin, the pressure of our alienation from you, God. We thank you that as we all over again reenact the arrival of Jesus, we give thanks that his arrival meant that our futures were secure, that we have new reputation. Thank you for the new reputation. May we live into it now. In the name we pray, amen. Amen. Each week we respond to the teaching of God's Word with a moment of confession as we prepare our hearts to go to the table.